Why does someone leave the religion they were born into? What causes people to convert to a new belief system? What goes on inside a high-demand religion? Listen to the experiences of ordinary people as they answer those questions and more. Hello and welcome to Chrysalis Podcast. Today we are going to be interviewing Dana. So hello and welcome. Hi. Hello. Thank you for uh, having me. This is going to be a good opportunity. I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah. Could you just start by giving me a little bit about your background and where you come from? I grew up in the Salvation Army. I could just probably come right out and say it that way. Not many people know that it's a church, but it is. And so I grew up to one parent who barely got a GED, to another one just with a high school education. Why My parents decided to go to seminary in 1976 for two years, and then they came out pastors, both of them. So I could always, I always tell people, you know, like people go, I'm a pastor's kid. And I go, I'm the, pa- I'm the child of two pastors. And so made growing up quite interesting. So I spent the majority of my life uh, in the Salvation Army, moving around the different places, really getting involved in the brass banding. So music was huge huge for me growing up. And then after getting married, then not going to church for a while and getting a divorce, ended up in the Nazarene church. And then after a few years, uh, walked away from the church from good. So, okay. That's a, that's a lot. (laughs) It is, isn't it? (laughs) A lot to break down as they say in the uh, therapist world. Right. Sounds like kind of being an army kid, the way you describe moving around from place to place. Would you describe it that way? I would. Absolutely. We um, we moved around. We didn't own the house. The house belonged to the church. Sometimes we lived on top of the church building. Sometimes we actually had a house, but after one place or two years, they said, here, you're moving and this is where you're moving to. And this is when you have to move by. One Just place. Like yeah. Yep. And one place, my, I remember my dad saying, He really didn't think it would be a good fit for him. And the pastor in charge of all the pastors, basically his comment was, you don't like it. You you don't have to be a pastor any longer. Just so that was kind of, you don't like it, leave. And so, yeah, I mean, I went to four different high schools. Longest place growing up was six years. So yeah, I mean, it was the Salvation Army uses that military type of terminology. So uh, yeah. They even have army in the names. Yep. Mm -hmm. My parents uh, retired as majors. They were pastors for from 78 to 2019. So a little over 40 years and in various places across the Northeast part of the United States. So yeah, I mean, very much like the military experience, pretty much in many ways. It's interesting. You really don't think that it's a church when you go to the stores or see the people ringing the bell. You could give us some information about... It's, um, um, I would have to say, if you're familiar with um, the holiness movement, it would be very along the lines of, like I said, the Nazarene church. William Booth was a Methodist lay preacher in some of the rough spots in London in the in the late, uh, in like the 1830s, 1840s, where a lot of the churches in the, in, you know, in that area just didn't want certain people. And so over time, as they said, you know, one day just kind of came like a spiritual movement. And took on the military terminology, came to the United States in about the 1880s. And so it has very strong ties to, uh, it's in the, in the Wesleyan, you know, it's not Calvinist, it's a very in the Wesleyan chain, very strong in the holiness movements. The one thing the Salvation Army is unique that they don't do communion or baptism. They believe of it more of an inward sign of an outward feeling and kind of even said the certain key parts where it's not truly necessary to go to heaven. So growing up, I was never baptized or never did communion, but it was never more of the, we don't believe in it. It was more of just, these are certain things that aren't, like I said, hundred percent necessary. The Salvation Army had their own set of doctrines, but it was nothing far fetched. Typical Trinity believing, they don't, it wasn't always the believing of the once saved, always saved type of philosophy that was growing up in a lot of, that we were taught that many mainstream denominations always believed in the once saved, always saved type of thing. So I wouldn't say it was quite fundamental metal, but the army had its own flair. I learned most of my music training growing up to the Salvation Army because of the brass banding. It was second to none. I had places growing up and soon as music people knew that I was involved with the Salvation Army music, they knew of what level I was already going to be at because of the army had that strong British brass banding tradition. And in a lot of the different Salvation Army churches, instead of an organ player, they it was the band. And in certain places, even across the country today, some of the different Salvation Army church bands are phenomenal. Even 
even some, I have friends of mine who played the New York Philharmonic and places like that were part of various Salvation Army churches throughout. So wow. music was huge. And so even though I moved around a lot, it was like its own culture in a way. And it's funny now on the outside of the Salvation Army, you look at it going, damn, it's almost like a cultish in a way where, but it's just, that's its own culture, especially for those who grew up as being, you know, we were officers, kids, but there's always the pressure on us. We always had the attention. So I always joked around where if I was going to do anything I wasn't supposed to, I would have to be very good at it because if I got caught, I'd never hear the end of it. So but going through seminary with my parents, I kind of acted like the rules didn't apply. So it was always that always us versus them. You know, even when you talk about how evangelicalism, it's always the us versus them. It's the, the sinners versus us godly people. Well, when you dealt with officers, kids, and you know, also pastors, it was us versus everybody else. And so you had to be a, one step ahead of everybody else because everybody would tell on you. But yet the rules didn't apply. So it already created that mentality of entitled. I went to the Christian bookstore and demanded the manager that I'd get a 10% discount because my parents got one. So I was that type of know-it-all kid who exploited the rules, but it was just its own world. I had my own friends at camp and whose, whose parents were Salvation Army pastors. And so you didn't feel like you were a part of anything, but it was, you got sucked into leadership. It was just second nature, especially if you were out. I wasn't outgoing because I was bullied so much, but to the army and the various different programs and stuff, it allowed me just that honed all my leadership skills and everything I knew about I got anytime there was a leadership training or leadership track in music or something, I was always a part of it. So it was that outlet. It was that backbone because without it, I was nothing because I didn't have friends out in the normal world. I was bullied at school every day. I didn't belong. But yet in my church world, it was everything. So you kind of believed, you felt you were saved. You went through all the motions, right? but you just did it because that's what you were expected to mm-hmm. play your instrument, do whatever. But it just created this just cycle of nothingness, but then you expect to go to a small college and all that. So it was probably even through getting my first marriage, it was pretty much everything. And so that the right. Salvation Army literally was, there was that and then there was nothing else pretty much you know growing up in the army you had your you know they they don't call their members typical members they call them soldiers you have a junior soldier or a senior soldier and you have to learn all the different pledges and doc you know like church rules and stuff i actually wanted to ask you about the structure if that's okay Uh just just sure sorry to i realize there is a whole structure to the salvation army system Mm -hmm. with the rank well there's two different types of organization there's geographical so Mm -hmm. the international headquarters for the salvation army around the world is actually in london england and that's where the army was founded in 1865 the army's then divided into territories all around the world so in the united states there's actually four territories there's the eastern southern central and western and then like i'm in the northeast part of the united states so the, the headquarters is in the new york city area there's even a national headquarters for the united states and that's in like alexandria virginia but the way so you have the salvation army is divided up into that structure and then when you talk about ranks, the whoever elected as the leader is the general. And there have been some women general, and the army thought they were being very progressive in the 80s and early 90s, electing a, a woman general. Even the founder's wife of the Salvation Army, she, they believed that just as much men and women both had, both my parents had equal ordination. Yeah, That's very and unusual. So, so you have rank of general, then you have commissioners, but then when you first going, when you first come out of seminary, sometimes you, it's like you use like a lieutenant. And after so many years, you go up to the next rank and then you go up to the next rank. And then by special appointment, you could be lieutenant colonel or commissioner, but it's just that year of structure, certain positions and seniority, and that will allow the certain ranks and they'll show the certain bits on the uniforms. The founder of the Salvation Army liked the concept of the uniform because it was this, you could come to church and you can make a million dollars a year. I could barely afford $10 you know, a year, but if we're all dressed the same, we have a common purpose and it just checks that ego at the door. I remember that evangelical college I went to, some other guy on the floor, his dad was a pastor. I says, I'll make a deal with you. My dad and your dad go stand on the corner and not say a word. And I says, I guarantee you, they'll know who my dad is, what he represents, what he stands for. And your dad is some guy in a suit. I liked the art, the, the Salvation Army uniform growing up because I never had to worry about what I wore. But yet it was just, it was, again, it was that uniqueness of it. Again, part of that military structure, but around the world, the Salvation Army has been around for a while. In the Northeast part of the United States, people knew more for the Salvation Army for what they do rather than who they are. 
Right. And I'd have arguments with my dad. I mean, even when I was actually talking to them, I'd be like, what's the point of that motto of doing the most good? I'd go, what's the point of doing the most good? Well, people don't know why you're doing it in the first place. It was it beef growing up going, why don't the people know more of what the Salvation Army is at a church? From what I thought at the time, if it had better publicity, I think if people would start seeing how unique it was, it was different. It wasn't stuffy like some old mainline church, but it wasn't super off the wall crazy like some, you know, some of the good old assembly of gods back in the day. It was just, again, it was so counterculture to everything in a way. And so I liked the, I really did like the army growing up. I have friends from college would come and say each week is something different because it just wasn't always the same stodgy every week. One week could be very serious, one week could be very joyful and that way. And when I played in the band, it gave me something to do every Sunday. I got to sit on the platform. Again, always that keeping busy through church. It was something that I thought I would do forever. I'd be a pastor, just like my parents. I had everything all planned out. Right. Just to backtrack, you said at school you were bullied. So did you go to a public school? I did in all the different communities that my parents lived. um, Never went to a private school. I went through public elementary school, public junior high, public high school. That's why I mentioned four different high schools, but never once the urge to go to a private Christian school. So knowing some people who I've grown up with, I'm very fortunate in that regard. But still Mm -hmm. though, yeah, I was bullied horrifically. Yeah, pretty bad. So would you say most of your friends and activities were through the church? Absolutely. If not in the town where that I was living at, because a lot of times people at the churches where my parents had, there was a, an average youth group, but n- nowhere on my level musically or all the different Salvation Army churches would get together in a certain area and we'd have music practices. So we'd have a band practice or singing because we'd go on a trip somewhere or whatever, but that became your social circles. And sure. outside of that, I mean, that's where I dated. That's where, you know, when you went the trip to Jamaica or the trip to Argentina, you always found someone to, that you were kind of dating for the trip. Right. And, someone within but, the community. Exactly. So it became within that Salvation Army community and there was nothing else. I mean, looking back on it, it sounds pretty messed up, but at the time it was just. A tight knit community. In a way. Yeah. I mean, even, I mean, even in that tight knit community, I was sometimes the butt of the jokes. It just always followed who I was, but it was just a complete different world. It was more insulated. Like you had your friends, you had your people who didn't like you, but it was still within that, that Salvation Army bubble in a way. Yeah. Right. What instrument did you play? I never asked. I was a euphonium player. It was called a tenor tuba back in the day. Oh, okay. So that kind of just kept myself occupied. And so it was through various bands in the Salvation Army, you know, you went around and again, you went through the motions, you did whatever. I mean, the only downside is that when I played in this one band, I ended up going to a Christian and Missionary Alliance college, good old Nyack College. Going to an evangelical college was, it was quite interesting because Mm -hmm. the ability wanting to rebel was there. I rebelled pretty hard for evangelical standards. And it was kind of fun in a way because it was, again, how to get away with it and not get caught on a campus where everybody tells on you. So through all that time, you're just going through that rebellion. You have this issues going on with me and you know, starting to get an ideas of things going on. But yet at the same time, I found my Bible from those days just recently. And the things I wrote in there when I was 21, 22, I, I'm appalled at that person. You know, I, I was there during the, the, um, the 1992 election of, um, it was, Clinton. um, it was when GW, yeah, when first Clinton, the yeah. Clinton, first Clinton election. Right. I, you learned firsthand how hateful people could be. And it was so easy to get sucked into that right wing attitude. I mean, at the time, I thought it was cool to listen to Rush Limbaugh and all that stuff. And because that was that community and it wasn't forced on me by my parents, it was still the church, but it was always that twinged. And so, and through that evangelical college, I got sucked in. And I really wasn't that 100% political beforehand, right? but just that evangelical community turned me and I spent the last, I I turned into a horrific right-wing Republican because cool Christians did. Well, I think that's still true today that evangelicals do tend to trend more Republican. I think Mm -hmm. it just tends to align that way. I think that's pretty safe to say. Politically neutral, that's pretty much mm -hmm, the fact, mm -hmm, right? And it was interesting at the same time, I mean, again, I'm playing in this band. I'd go through the motions where I wouldn't go to chapel. I'd sign in. I worked at the radio station. So I'd hide and I'd hide in the radio station and just make my own tapes and stuff because 
the station director didn't just play all Christian music. He said there are other bands out there and because most Christians aren't going to just go down the highway and just go, oh, let me listen to Christian music. They had to have other bands to kind of hook them in. And it opened my eyes to all these different bands and some who I love today that weren't Christian bands. And so right. it allowed me to start breaking through because in high school, it was only Christian bands and stuff like that. And I got sucked into the stripers. And I was even rebelling back then with Christian music that not many people like. So I always had that sense of rebellion, but going to that Christian college is sort of pushing me even more where you'd hear the deans go, we want this to be a place where people can send their kids. And I'm like, I mean, I had taken a year off after my freshman year. So I went at 20 years back at school at 20. And I'm like, you started to notice that type of mentality. I had a roommate where I said, what would you do if I came in drunk? And he's like, well, I'd tell on you. You know, I says, what are you going to be? He goes, I'm going to be a youth pastor. I said, you're going to be the worst youth pastor that has ever walked the planet. You didn't ask me once if I was okay. You know, that typical question, but it showed that legality and how that black and white that you're seeing so much more in the evangelical community, but it's just been building for the last 20 years. It's always been, we're in the spiritual battle, the onward Christian soldiers. So everything has become so polarized. We're in an evangelical college during that election. And that was the first time because when you got through the 80s, you know, we had the choose or lose, you had the rock to vote, and you started seeing more of the religious right really just start pushing very heavily in the politics, especially in that year. And like I said, it just spun me off to one direction politically, but I thought I was still being a good Christian. I thought I thought I was going to be a pastor. I went after my first marriage. I thought we were both called to be pastors, but at the same time, I had my own little sexual identity issues and stuff that I was working on that I had no idea of what was going on, but you had to keep a false front to it because you had to do what your reputation played in this band. You were one of the select few people. And so you had to put up this front. And so it just started eating away at the legalism of everything. But still, I thought I was still being a good Christian in my own radical way. So that was the army growing up pretty much. Just cycling back, when you were growing up, were you allowed to take in secular media, TV, music, or was it just the way it worked out with your community that that didn't happen? I remember the Christian music that my parents would listen to was always kind of cheesy. I remember them listening to the Statler Brothers and stuff like that. But at the same time, I remember watching a TV show called Solid Gold. You know, you still have to listen to it and go, oh, here's what the hits are this week. I remember as a teen having, still have these 45s, like Steve Miller Band, Abracadabra. I had Ghostbusters by Ray Parker Jr. I still had these 45s that my parents would listen to. They really didn't police much until I had a neighbor who was into like Motley Crue, Judas Priest, and stuff like that, where... That's when my mom started to get kind of a little bit more up in inspecting what my music was, but I would still listen to some of the stuff that was popular in the eighties, but there wasn't a lot of that type of policing until I remember theater of pain by Motley Crue and in junior high, that was all the people and played in band. But then I found my own offshoot. That's how I got into the stripers and the, and all those Christian metal bands. And I found this Christian alternative radio station that played broadcast North of me. And it was that moment where I got more Christian alternative music. And I drove myself in the Christian music myself. It was me who did it. It wasn't my parents who said, you can't. I dug out on my own. And I started finding this whole, especially about freshman year of college and everywhere. I, def- I found a favorite band of mine that once you learned into other bands, there was this whole subculture in Christian music that the bands were incredible, but it was my own way of rebelling. So I was right. still in the church, but rebelling. Rebelling within the framework. Correct. And so, but that was all I knew that I was allowed because I still lived in a very isolated world. My parents had a youth pastor that lived with us. And I think everybody knew that he was gay back then, but I remember my mom just making horrifically homophobic comments about the guy, but he was our youth pastor. We connected years later, we got the share of past and our backgrounds and stories. And he says, you were the most walled off person. Your parents put this wall around you. They were super protective of you. I just lived in that bubble where I didn't know where to get in trouble. It bit me on the ass. So I tried to find my own pretty much, but right. it, it was just its own little world. So I drove myself more into being more of a radical political type of Christian. I did that on my own. Because I thought at the same time, I'm going to be a pastor. Ooh, I could. I just thought it was easy work. I mean, even so when you I, say when you say radical political Christian, do you mean right wing or 
the politicalness didn't come much from the army. The politicalness came from more of just being at that evangelical college. I was there for two years. And during the course of that time, that was just, that's what you did. I mean, as you saw people in the hallway and it's because you, you felt like Democrats were the people who they didn't love Jesus. The, right. How do you start coming out and tell people about your sexual identity at an evangelical college? You can't do that. And so right. you're hearing all these negative comments, but yet you can't go against it to where the church went. That's what you were. But in the army, it wasn't political at all, but it was just through everywhere else in the church world. And you believe the Fox News narrative that, that them versus that horrible liberal media. And you, cause you got sucked into that church culture. Later on, I was able to start kind of sorting it out, but for a while, it's very easy to get sucked in. It really is. Well, we're influenced very strongly by our surroundings and the people around us. Yeah, so exactly. Just to cycle back what you were saying about your sexual identity issues, if you mm -hmm. don't mind talking about that, if you don't mind, within the framework of your church and your family. Yeah. When did you first become aware of that? I was probably aware of something going on with me at an early age. I grew up thinking that I didn't know what it was because I mean, I grew up, I'm, I'm, I'm trans. And so I just always wondered why I just didn't feel like I knew something wasn't right. I felt like I didn't belong. I didn't, I would from a young age make these scenarios in my head where I knew that I could turn myself into a girl and I would be perfectly happy and I could just survive. I wouldn't have to worry, you know, I wouldn't have to worry, feel like hiding. Even growing up, it was felt like I never was one of the guys. I never felt in that regards. And so I didn't know what it was. I was always called fag. That's why I was teased all the time. I was bullied so much. Yeah. Even within the Salvation Army community, people who I used to work at summer camp with, some of the humiliation was just downright horrible. And some of these were other pastors' kids, just like myself. But through the public schools getting beat up and harassed, this is when the AIDS culture was happening in, in the mid-80s. But yet you knew something just didn't fit, but you didn't have a label. And as things went on, and always the jokes about gay people, that was right. just an idea that you, you didn't want to put those pieces together because you really weren't told that they were available pieces to even examine. And I remember the just kind of building, but for a while, still not putting the pieces together. I thought maybe it was just because I was gay or something like that. Right. But as time went on, put the pieces together, but I never allowed myself to explore it because of the shame associated with it. Well, you, you know, hey, I had a safe environment to do that. Right. I was just told that was disgusting, bad habits that you're supposed to give mm -hmm. that to God and all that stuff will go away. And so what are you going to do? You got to, you got to date the right girl. You got to do the right thing. And knowing something's right or wrong, still someone can make the choice and say, I won't go to do something, but to not even give yourself the opportunity to even ponder the question to because figure it, it was out just, because, it's just yeah. it, but not knowing because a lot of times what was there. And so I went through you know, one college and I remember right around the time of one of the places I moved, I ended up dating someone who I, ended, I would end up marrying, but still really didn't know what was going on. And I would try to reach out to talk with people online or in chat rooms, et cetera. Right. But it wasn't because of a sex type of thing, but again, it was just trying to explore and figure out who I was and try to, you know, because again, I had nobody to turn to. I mean, I couldn't go to a therapist and say that way because you, your, your world would be ripped the shreds. And of so course. here I am married, ended up over time having a child, took long enough, but it was just, my first marriage ended up, we divorced after about over 10 years. Back with stories is I had left the church for a while and it was my oldest who kind of brought me back to the church. My ex and I decided that they, her and the person she was dating was going to go back to church. And I said, you know what? We've had always off the years. We had a pretty good cordial relationship. So it was my oldest that brought me back and we ended up going to a Nazarene church because we found it was very similar to the whole, you know, and there was a lot of people who ended up leaving the Salvation Army as a church that migrated over to the Nazarene church because of the doctrine is so similar. Right. And so I thought I was happy. So I brought back something in with me. I'm like, okay, I had still had not officially come out yet. I was still, this is really before the last bit of everything kind of unfolded, but kept me busy in the church. I wouldn't have to think about that. I ended up partway through it, finding someone who I was going to end up marrying that I'm still married to and almost 10 years later. But it, at the time, the Nazarene church just kind of answered a lot of the questions. I still right. could be involved. It was getting me back. Thought ministry was good, even in my own way. I was always, when everyone goes one way, I'd go the other. I didn't want to be baptized. I didn't want to, I joined the church. I wasn't going to follow any of that rules or whatever. I never did. I never ended up doing communion, even though everyone else loved it and my ex do it, even though my ex grew up in the Salvation Army as well, but I just said, I don't need to do it. So I was picking and choosing what I wanted because I wanted to do it my way, but I was happy at least because I was still finding myself to be in the church and it was that culture. 
that I was right. used to, but I didn't have to do it under that, the, the weirdness of what I, or my anger towards the Salvation Army these days. So it was the best of both worlds. I had my kid, I get to see my kid every Sunday, be a part of her life. And then at the same time, ended up getting remarried, ended up having another child and having that child be a part of her big sister's world. We're all in the church together, showing a sense of, hey, let's be good adults. We're all going to church and it's two, two separate families. Everything was wonderful. But right. and, and you could still believe, but you didn't have to be part of the Salvation Army framework. Correct. And even, you know, there was 10, we each had common people where even the pastor at the one place we went, some of his former grandparents were actually army officers at one time. And so just seeing how many district superintendent, wait a minute, your sister was someone, oh, her sister was a Salvation Army officer and her husband, she was in charge of the kitchen during the summer at summer camp. So I'm like, wait, okay. that's your, Mrs. Blah, blah, blah is your sister. But it just goes to show how church worlds are so connected. And right. but it just made it easy to get back into that church world. Still not 100% up on Nazarene culture and rules and stuff, but it was just, it was easy to go to. I could be involved as I wanted to, but I ended up being playing in the band. I was on the church, ended up being on the church board. I ended up teaching Sunday school. I took pictures for everything. It was the same as my, my childhood, just getting sucked into church stuff 100% of the time. Involved. Exactly. It was just normal. And that was my, again, that's childhood. You're always used to being at the church four or five nights a week sometimes. And oh my goodness. Yeah. We had, we had, you would have to sometimes go down to the church building on ladies nights because there was no one to be at home. If you lived on top of the church building, you got lucky because you could just go upstairs. But there was many nights you had youth programs or some nights were music practices and other nights where we could be at the church at least three or four days a week, you know, wow. that's intense. It was, but that was just church life. That's from when my parents and parents were ordained when I was six and through, through all those teenage years growing up again, it was everything. And there was no really much outside world, right? but at the same time you thought, Oh, in between there, there was the whole beliefs and doctrines and all that stuff. And you know, so what happened? My oldest went through some issues and it hit her really hard. Whereas we're trying to figure out what had happened and throughout a lot of discovering what was going on, I was pretty much blamed for most of it. And I needed to see someone for it. And I had a couple of choice words, but it made me think more about what was going on in my life. And it made me explore more of what finally got me to leave the church. But it was my love of my kid that made me kind of analyze and say, all right, I know I've been just trying over the last few years, put the pieces together and then really taking that hard look at myself. It was like that little voice in the back of your head saying, here's one area you've never looked at. You've never allowed yourself to look at as part of more of the, um, the ability to separate sexuality from identity, right. the sexual orientation, this is your gender identity and to be able to segregate, segregate the two and knowing that they're completely different things. Because again, dealing with the criticism from the church, oh, you're gay and all of this and whatever, but knowing what was the right thing to do. So it made me really think long and hard. I went through, I remember having online arguments from people with focus on the family. I'm going back and forth. They're trying to convince me otherwise and finally started to really figure out what was going on. So at the same time, again, I'm playing in the band every Sunday. I'm just about to be on the board. I'm teaching Sunday school. I'm so much involved in this church culture. I've been remarried for a couple of years now and I have a second daughter through the second marriage and things were going wonderful. And finally, when all the pieces came together, it's like, you don't know what to do with it. And so finally getting to the point where I came out to my spouse to say, this is who, this, after a long of, it's been a while, um, it may seem sudden, but this is where I'm at. And this is, wrote a whole letter. And the first words out of her mouth was, are you leaving? And I'm like, no, no, that's not what this is about. And so, you know, we've been married for almost 10 years now. But thinking you get married and who would have thought three sure. plus years later, your spouse is going to come out. And so thinking she was going to leave me, she's thinking I was going to leave her. So, but at the same time, she didn't really want me to tell anybody or to say anything. And I said, all right, as long as I know that we're going to be fine, I'll give you all the time in the world. That was probably one of the best lessons I've ever learned because all of a sudden I made it, it wasn't just about me. So it allowed me to come to better terms with who I am and how to properly navigate things. And instead of just blabbing it out to everybody, allowed me to properly prepare myself 
because I was going to have to defend myself sooner or later against the church and people in my world who were just, the minute they ever hear someone like this, they're, they're, they're gather the horses, circle around and try to tear everybody's lives apart, which ended up eventually happening, trying to happen. So through with my spouse and started the medical side of my transition and just let things just go very slowly, not telling anybody, not telling work. And it allowed time for me to build my defense. I was outed about six months in, which started to really kind of tear my world apart. I had to face my pastor and I had to come out to them and I got the, well, why didn't you go see a Christian therapist? And I'm like, well, because I wanted one who knows what they're actually talking about. Not one to say, well, you can go up to that line, but don't go past that line. No, 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 no. I want the whole thing. So actually I said, I'm a couple expletives as well. And just, I wanted one who would know what they're doing. And I turned to my pastor and I says, oh, and by the way, if you're going to challenge me spiritually on this, I'll hand you your lunch. I go, you will, you best stay clear of me. I was stripped from leadership of the board. Couldn't play in the band anymore. No longer allowed to teach Sunday school. They wanted me to go to Cuba still on their trip because I was taking pictures. And so they at least wanted to use my photography skills. And so I stepped down from all that. I was leading all the music on, you know, all the Christmas stuff that was going on. I was doing so much musically and all the other leadership where they just made me stop cold turkey. And this few months that we stayed, this pastor would try to talk me down. They were trying to split my wife and I up. Oh, this can keep, we'll keep her busy with stuff. And pastor would try to come over and talk to me. And every time he would, well, it's not good if you let one person fall. They've tried all those different verses. And I just shredded him in every single one. And I'm just like, you know what? You want to cause people not to fall? Knowledge. Tell them to get off their ignorant asses and actually to go learn about what it is to be trans and get to know that. And it was so nice to be able to defend myself and say, you know what? There is nothing wrong with me. And this pastor, believe it or not, hooked me up with, and I don't know if he was meant to do this, but I ended up getting involved with someone. Uh, she was like one of this emeritus pastors on this program the Nazarene Church was doing to reach out to gay and trans people. And never to get the conversation with the one guy, but this one woman and I just started making this friendship for hours. I mean, we probably spent probably in a week, well over the 30, 40 hours on the phone, just in a week, just conversations right. and explaining. And the residual theme was, and I would say, well, I have to go somewhere and I happen to have to go in the other mode. Why? Why are you hiding? What are you, you're not doing anything wrong. Why are you? Got to the point where to realize the church is so drilled into our head that there's something wrong with us, but there's not. Right. We have done nothing wrong. And it gave me a better mentality about myself. And it was with the outing and everything and having to fight my pastor and having all this kind of tear me apart really started to, but that six months gave me a little bit of a backbone. And partway through the battles, I remember I would still read the right-wing sites and I don't know what caused me to read the comments, but you know how you never read the comments and in, in sites? Well, something yeah. I read and it snapped at me and I said, you people keep saying Christian this, Christian that. You're the first person who's sitting there in church raising their hands, but yet, oh, Jesus is great and awesome, but just be honest. It's those who think like you, look like you, act like you, believe like you. You guys are saying all this stuff. And I just said, you know what? The Bible said, look at the splint, you know, the log in your own eye before the speck in someone else. I'm saying he's trying to give you a hint to shut the F up. And I said, in case you got that log out, then he said to that person without sin, cast the first stone. And I just flipped out. I'm like, all right, tell me what your name is so I can worship you. Because if you're going to sit there and attack trans people or gay people, you know, you must got your act together. You must be holier than now. And right. I sent a letter to my pastor saying, I don't think I could ever call myself a conservative again. And it was just that finally having it out with got tired of what the church was telling me and that I was just this horrible broken person that didn't deserve my family or deserve anything and seeing what you're you know some of the reaction I got from some people was horrible it sounds like it so your pastor inadvertently gave you a support system at the same time that his church was telling you right that this was not acceptable not within the framework that's he didn't know much about ironic. this support system because again, I thought one of these like gotcha ministries where, Ooh, we'll bring you in. And next thing you know, they have you in conversion therapy or something like that. But right. in talking to this woman, uh, it just turned out she became a phenomenal resource. And I had the assistant pastor on the phone and try to guilt me and making me feel horrible and how shame I do this to my family and whatever. And but isn't just, that your wife's decision to make? Correct. Or and this, right. Exactly. And this was hard on her as it is. I mean, don't, I mean, this wasn't easy for everybody. And I'm just like, and finally saying, you know, I had to say to the pastor, look, I love my spouse enough to say that I know. And I'm, and says, we are dealing with this. We have our own plan. We've had our discussions. We have really tried to be as open and 
communicative as possible, just to try to talk as much as possible. And we are dealing with this in our way. And, you know, they told you earlier, I just said to myself, I go, look, as long as we're going to be okay, I'll give you all the time in the world you want. It took her 13 right. months to just tell her mom. And so for, I'm here going through hormone therapy, my looks are changing and couldn't tell anybody why. And I didn't, because I love my wife. And when she was ready to tell right. people, let her do it on her terms and her way. And it taught me patience. It taught me understanding. Um, she thought it was a phase until I actually had to come out to my do- oldest daughter. And she go, she saw me how I broke down in tears trying to tell her my oldest. That's when my wife knew that this was this, this was something serious for real. And so, but it wasn't easy. And then having that pressure from those so-called church family, that was, was just horrible. And one day it broke and they're like, well, pastor's like, well, you're going to have to go up into the church board. You're going to have to tell them whatever story that you told me. And I guess Beth had said to the pastor, well, what's going to happen? Well, the worst thing could happen was they'd ask me to leave and her to stay. So right. we're already like, what's going on? So um, with this help of this person who, again, my pastor inadvertently introduced me to, I wrote out this huge piece and my friend helped me edit it. And I presented it to the board. I said, here's my whole story. Here I'm at, here's where we're at. And then we're just leaving. And I put right at the end, I says, we love you all. We're going to show grace and we're just going to leave. And right. everyone was crying, but you know what? Never heard from a single person from that church again. After all How that, where you're- How long ago the, was this? We left in February of 16. So it was five years ago, but it was because of being outed and trying to stand my ground and say that there's nothing wrong. And it's not like I was one of those, I mean, not that there's anything wrong with these people, but when I came out, I just didn't start racing in to change my look or whatever. I just let things happen naturally over time. Um, I just, and I let things go my way. I did it, you know, but it was still too fast for church people because they have to have it on their terms. And so we left the church and I got to tell you, I had never had more of an understanding for people the minute I walked away from the church. Like, again, I always, I was, I was one of those people who mocked Black Lives Matter. I was one of those people, just any type of left-wing type of thing, even though I'm still, I thought when I first came out, I could be a trans, an evangelical, conservative, Christian, Republican, trans, trans woman. Right. I thought that that was possible because that was my world. And then realizing that's not the case at all. And that's not possible. You were perfectly willing, it sounds like, to stay in the church, to continue believing to be part of the community with the one condition that they accepted who you are. Exactly. Exactly. In this one area. Yep. I mean, I was not going to leave my marriage. I was not doing anything. I'm just saying this is who I am. And I want that respect. I preach the sermon that yeah, having an affair, you're, you're part of the community. You're super involved. Exactly. You just, just you've seen me for years. You've entrusted me with all this leadership for years. You've said that you've, I've been with your families. I've been with your kids. I've done all this. And so now you're going to question my judgment. Now you're going to call me very threatening. Yes, exactly. And so it made it very difficult, but that that final straw was just, they were going to ask her to stay and me to leave. And I let Beth make the decision with me and we haven't been back. We have not been back to a church. I since have just totally stopped believing period, but it was through that leaving the church, coming out, finding myself, finding out that I'm truly totally, you know, change my political registration, just change my outlook on myself, my acceptance of myself. But it's still, I mean, there's still a lot of baggage. I'm still looking for a therapist that could, I could how to deal with there's so many different levels, dealing with being an ex-evangelical, dealing with being a pastor's kid, dealing with having to deal with a culture growing up and there was something with your identity and your sexuality that you repressed it for so long because you didn't allow to talk about it. So how do you find someone? It's a lot of different boxes to check. It is. But you know, being one of those 20 years ago, I would have never thought I'd be where I'm at today, specifically in the not believing part. Because I've heard people had stopped going to church. It's just had that stigma about them. Now being one of those people who just walked away in general and not only doesn't miss it, but actually is very angry about it. It's freeing, but at the same time, it, now having to process everything is very difficult. It's a lot to process. Imagine, especially given how involved you were growing up, it's it's going to take, it would take a while. It is. Because if they tell some people, I go, look, it's not more just you decided to stop going when it was everything that you knew. I mean, that's something that's, and then having to do what changes where you were taught all those people like, you never, you 
you never had nice things to say about those type of people, which I'm now one of them. Right. And then to allow yourself to say, you are okay, that there's nothing wrong. And then doing your own research to find that there's nothing. I love how they spat out that verse in Genesis about only being two genders, but their, their knowledge of medical history stops there. It's been neat to kind of be on that and just to get away from some of that mentality that you had for so long that you thought you were so smart, but you're so blind to a lot of things. So if you don't mind my asking, what led you to going from non-attending a particular church to changing your belief system? I had started reading again, and I started reading books from very progressive Christian authors. He wrote a book called Unafraid, as his name's good, but I started reading some progressive authors. John Pavlovitz, I started reading and seeing that there is that progressive side. There is that we care about the red letters more than anything. So it really started gravitating to that, seeing more how open they were being to the LGBT community and finding that, okay, I really want to try to just put myself in this niche. But I kept reading and I started listening to some different podcasts. And I came across one where a guy said, you feel your level of questioning. Started listening and ended up coming across a book from an author, 10 questions in Christian thought and practice or something. A guy was a former pastor turned atheist. And I started going through and listening to some of his work. And when you break things down, technically, certain things about the Bible didn't start to make sense to me. How you learned the timeline that the Gospels were written after Acts and Romans. Right. You talk about how certain bits of certain of the Gospels, the writing styles, and they showed how they, these sections were written by different people. John makes Jesus look like an asshole. So apparently, whoever wrote John was something completely different. And so when they started talking about the timelines and things going on, and how there are no other documents really backing up the validity of the Bible. Because, sorry, if Lazarus really happened, there would have been some other meaning, like some dude just raised another dude from the dead. It would have been in some other type of situation. Right. And it's just, you right. start thinking, and then you start learning about you know, how people just take the Bible out of context. And I read all the book on Colby Martin, wrote a book called Unclobbered, which is a phenomenal book, just really breaking down all those clobber verses, talking about tense and how the time, how certain words didn't exist back in the Bible. And again, breaking it apart really just started knocking holes that were kind of starting to get bigger as it was. But when you dealt with the translation part and how they've just taken the Bible out of context for years, and then just looking the stories going, you know, either Christianity was made up by Constantine or Paul's trip down the Damascus road or whatever road it was, was he just an epileptic seizure? And this is all a byproduct of that. But when you started looking at the timeliness and everything and how the rap, you know, God, what blew my mind years ago was finding that the rapture theology was incorrect, that James Darby, the rapture theology was introduced by a guy named James Darby. I believe it was. He was actually in the Midwest. He is the one who created this rapture theology, how it's been so prevalent. I grew up some of the most horrific movie, The Thief in the Night, The Distant Thunder, those movies well beyond that Left Behind series. Go back a uh -huh. generation before those movies that were, we scared us kids about the rapture, where I couldn't find my parents in a department store. And I broke down screaming, hysteric mess in the middle of a department store because I couldn't find my parents because I thought the rapture happened. You thought that they'd been taken away. And this movie just gave me nightmares for all my childhood and all growing up to find that the rapture theology was just no more. A Thief in the Night, A Distant Thunder. There was this whole chain of movies that come to this church on a Sunday night for a movie night and this is what they made us oh, kids watch and right. but to find out that whole theology movement it was just fake that really again started putting holes in it and it just right. got to the point where there was just nothing there and still my anger about the church so 2016 happened and how just the hatefulness of people and I even noticed it in my writing that I do and I post it online occasionally as I started to see you know a whole bunch of the different articles posting how I could see how everything just started unraveling to the point where I was right. just done. And I just said, forget it. I couldn't do it anymore. And I feel gypped because I wanted that first 40 years of my life back. And it's like, right. I, knowing that I sequestered myself from going to a good school, I cheated myself musically. I didn't take things serious growing up about having a good career or taking, you know, or doing the right thing because I just thought this is what I was supposed to do. And right. when you realize that after it's too late, it's hard still. I mean, it takes, sometimes people take a lifetime building a career and to be able to try to redo things over time, it's difficult. 
it's that unprogramming from that culture, which was still the hardest part. You didn't even know that you were locked into that because mm-hmm. it was so much a part of your life. Exactly. So. We're trained us versus them. You know, even if you're going from a non-army world to a church world, it's always that us versus them mentality. It's the righteous versus the sinners. And you're this or that. You don't do the one little thing right. You're shunned out of your church community. And so right. you're expected to tow this this doctrine line that lacks any and all understanding and it's you know it's it's i can see why a lot of times people just get frustrated and shut their mouths and don't want to say anything a lot of people stay you know that's that's why they all get back in the day people say uh, a lot of times the church is that way for people you know they everything all their culture all their friends all their connections problem you know bob jim bob comes over there and helps to fix something at your house because that's what Jim Bob does. But the minute you don't do what the church wants, Jim Bob doesn't remember who you are. Right, right. And yeah, no, your whole community and your support system and your marriage and maybe your career a lot of times. Correct, correct. If you're exactly. In a, it's too high a price to pay for, for some people. And it makes a lot of people second guess what they're going to do. And a lot of times that's either a coming out or staying in a marriage or taking a job or moving away sometimes. I mean, it's that the church becomes very controlling and think it's just being a good Christian, but it's just right. people don't realize how much they've been sucked in to this, just authoritarianism. I mean, yeah. people have succumbed to that in the church world and they don't even realize it. I think it's definitely true in certain communities. I don't want to characterize all of Christianity that way, because like you say, there are progressive Christians and liberal, mm-hmm. more liberal true. streams. True. But when you're talking about the more high demand religions, the tighter knit communities, there definitely is or can't be an authoritarian streak. Yes, absolutely. I have a lot of anger about it because again, it's entwined with so much others and it seems to come out in other ways, but I still have very strong friendships with people who are still very much involved in church and still very good to me in my life, have been very respectful. Even people from back in my days from when I was still in the army and people who 30 years later, we've got to rekindle friendships, even cross the whole no longer being a Christian or no longer looking the way that I used to look, but it has been nice. I'm glad you said something because I think I should clarify and say, yeah. and it's, I guess it's hard because I got, I've kind of been upset for a while when everyone says not all Christians and I would get upset and go, well, if it's not all of them, then why aren't those people being just as loud as the ones of us who are upset? Because the worst, apparently we're mad at some group. But if there's a part of the group that says, well, we're not like them, well, that group who's not like them should be with us going after the people who are the ones doing something wrong. And a lot of times I don't see that happening. You see the church attacking the LGBT community and you get upset and you hear the, well, not all Christians. That's great. But then where are those? Where are those people who are, who are saying not us? Right. Why aren't, why aren't they just as loud as us? And if it they seems tr- like the negative people are always the loudest. Yes. Um, and it's not meant to also seem to be ungrateful at the same time. It's just maybe we're so hurt. And sometimes we only see things that are on that same level of anger, but not realizing we have many people helping underneath the scenes. And it's hard is because we let our emotions get the best of us. So it's, it is hard and to be upset and still at the same time going, but not everybody <laughs> to add that in and, and, and try to keep in mind not to paint everybody with the same brush. Yes. But, emotions right. makes that very difficult at times. It really does. And hurt yeah. and pain, you lose at times objectivity very easily. Right. Right. So nice segue. <laughs> not a very good one, I guess. Well, on a almost completely different topic. Where, where would you consider yourself today? Are you a non-believer? I am a non-believer. Correct. I would definitely say that. I believe the more that I've been away, I do feel, I feel a lot more at peace wanting to help people for the sake of wanting to help people should be all the motivation anybody needs. I want someone to have something as just as good as I have it. So I should try to help people out just because that's the right thing to do. Not feeling some type of spiritual pressure. I don't know if that's considered a humanist or whatever, but I find myself a lot happier when I don't have to 
rely on some spiritual laws or something like that to make sense of everything. Right. You don't have to fit people into a framework that they don't fit into. Correct. Right. I hear that a lot from people who leave rigid belief systems that it makes dealing with people a lot easier yes. when you don't have to, at the same time, sort of judge them for what they're not meeting. I think it's a common, it's freeing. It is. It's, it's frustrating at times because it's freeing, but a lot of times people, it's funny that those who usually cast judgment of us, see us kind of struggling and seeing us trying to pick up all the pieces and they'll use that to mock us and say, see, see, you truly do lose it when you're no longer part of the family, but they're not realizing that it's freeing. I tell people like my coming out and finally being who I am allowed me to finally take the wrapper off of a whole bunch of other issues that I've been using to, I've been hiding so much. And that's a lot of times people who are still in the church looking at us who have left and go, ha, ha, ha look at you, you know, you're at, you're, you're struggling, but we're really not. We're just trying to pick up all the pieces because we realize how shattered it's left us. And so if anything, that's the hardest part. It's going, I'm happy, but yet at the same time, I've got a lot of stuff to clean up. Right. I don't mean to minimize that because leaving a belief system that you've had your entire life, Mm -hmm. it's also very traumatizing. And that's aside from any other issues you might have to deal with on top of it, of course. But happier not to have to deal with that legalism anymore. Happier that I can raise my youngest in a home where I'm not going to church and not have to worry about it and just loving people for the sake of loving people. Learn how to have a social network through school and through other friends and stuff like that and not have to worry about that legalism. Right. I think that's been, pro- it's been nice to see as a parent. I've learned that everything was black and white and I lived the first like for coming out and whatnot, believing that same way in the church. Everything was black and white. You know, you couldn't do this or you could do that. And right. now when I look at what my nine-year-old watches or some things, I mean, I'm still kind of protective, but I'm not as controlling and go, look, just because I don't like it doesn't mean. And so I'm learning there's more shades between black and white. Right. And just because the church said something's wrong doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. And so to learn that it's almost like you go overboard sometimes and try to figure out between what's right and what's wrong and then realizing what you like and what you don't like, but it's like being allowed into a whole part of a restaurant where you've never been allowed before. And right. so then you, you deal out your own limits and boundaries. Exactly. And that's been kind of exciting as well. Um, it's that personal discovery of joys, you know, musically now or art, you know, art or culture or other stuff that I never allowed myself to take that time before. And so it is truly creating a new person in many, many, in many ways. Sure. Before we wrap up, are there any, anything you want to talk about that we haven't covered? I think we covered quite a bit. So I appreciate you taking the time to have me. Okay. I appreciate your time. And uh, You're more than welcome. And you sharing all of this. You're welcome. I appreciate you listening. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. Please be sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes as they're released.